Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Dr. Ben House on the podcast. This is the second time Ben has been on, and we always have the most fascinating chats. First of all, we talk about his training and how he's been managing that and auto-regulating that, and then we get into a deep discussion surrounding processed foods. How bad are they? What can we do to manage them? What are highly processed foods or ultra-processed foods? And what are the implications of these type of foods? So if you've ever thought processed foods are just black and white bad or you're unsure, this is definitely a discussion for you. Guys, enjoy the chat. It was a lot of fun. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Ben House back on the podcast. He was on for episode 217. And in that episode, we talked all about gaining rates and calorie surpluses and what that all means and uh yeah it was a lot of fun and i'm excited to dig into some interesting topics this time around as well uh, i always enjoy following ben's work and seeing what he's up to and actually that's something i've been getting into ben uh, i haven't told you i was going to do this but it's just like for the bros who are like we're evidence-based but also lift how's your training going how's everything going on your end because i know you just said if we can say possibly a prep on the cards next year yeah 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 uh so i don't i have a daughter uh so my life is kind of training is to me is is my anchoring habit um and so it's been really really fun like because training used to be it used to be everything it used to literally be my baby and now i have a real live human <laughs> baby uh it, it's been it's been a really humbling but also one of my I think I'm able to be a lot more empathetic and perspective take a lot better. Um, and it's also honed me in on kind of like what is most important for me personally. Um, and what's most important for me is and I think most everyone listening on this call is the process of training. Um, so I've done, a, I've kind of shifted uh, with, with my coach to like more of an auto regulated um, which basically means I kind of do whatever I want, but in a, but in a regimented way, I, I think like, if we look at the literature, there's something about 10 to 12 sets. And then there's something about maybe going above that for certain periods of time. I think if you, if you looked at the literature, you would think, okay, volume's important. Right. Um, and then the quality of that volume is, is also very important. And so what I've tried to do is like, okay, I probably can't take all of my muscle groups up to 30 because my ability to recover is going to be, blunted like it's just going to be blunted and also my time domains for training are are somewhat not as i'm not you know a single 22 year old anymore i don't i can't be in the gym multiple times a day for two hours uh so it's been it's been really really fun to have those constraints and i think when we have those constraints we kind of learn what's most important to us and then we also learn oh wow i might have been doing some things because i have more time that were probably superfluous to actual get, actually getting results. So that's been that's been pretty fun is to kind of have this programming, which is more like muscle-centric based. Like, okay, I'm going to have a block where I take my lats up to like 20, 25 sets and then kind of keep your other areas at your kind of your maintenance um, and almost compartmentalizing what you're working on a little bit more and being a little bit more intentional. And I've never done that before. I've kind of tried, I've done it. I've played with it, but I've never done it to this extent before. And the thing that's been most surprising to me is how little volume is necessary to hold the line. That's kind of been the most surprising and the most surprising thing. And, and I think a lot of us in the evidence-based fitness community who like to lift, we actually don't like that. Cause it goes against a lot of our identities of like, no, we got to, we got to try harder, but like 
legitimately, you might be able to keep your strength. And, and Eric's talking about this a ton, like two to three hard sets a week on compounds um, and then get the bulk of your other volume for your joints on some, some cable work or something else. Uh, so it's been, it's been really fun. And I'll leave it then. No, it sounds really interesting in terms of uh, specialization phases, kind of what is that, what you're sort of alluding to there. It's nothing I've yet ventured into. It's kind of, again, it's that not wanting to not grow everything, but I imagine you think possibly because of your time restrictions, but possibly also at the level of advancement, you think kind of specialization phases might be what you need to really start seeing really good growth again. So you can prioritize all resources to those muscle groups. It's the, I would say anecdotally, um, it's the only way that I've gotten certain things that I, I feel like I've gotten them to move, like taking my chest up to 30, um, like taking, and my lats were probably because of my background and my training history, my lats, my lats were probably my most untrained muscle group, which I think is probably fairly, fairly consistent if you came from powerlifting or if you came from CrossFit or if you came from some other iron sport. Um, so I always, I, it was interesting, like that muscle group didn't necessarily need as much volume, but something like the anterior delts, which for me have been trained to pieces on compound movements. Like uh, I'm, in order for, you can make the argument that in order for me to get that to move, I either have, probably have to train the range of motions that I haven't trained in before, um, or I probably have to take that volume up. Um, and so maybe a little bit of both. And so th those are just things that I've been, and I think the research is kind of getting there too. Like if you think about something like quads, like if you're if you've come from a more power builder compound heavy type of background and you've never done a lot of like lengthened work or even like shorter quad range of motion, like I would, if you're chasing, you know, bigger legs, that's kind of where I would, you may, you might've filled that bucket up for like mid range quad. Right. And you might want to fill those other buckets up. Um, and I think the research is kind of starting to show that we have um, knuckles has reviewed a lot of the hamstring literature, but I think it'll probably start to show in a lot of, a lot of different muscle groups would be my guess. I think that from an anecdotal perspective, at least when you start obviously training a new kind of movement, you also can start seeing good progress, even past just learning it. You just start seeing better progress with it. So like almost like a, like you said, for a power lifter and they're trying to grow their chest, a bench press, which they've milked to sh the shit out of probably isn't going to be the best movement. Even going to like a dumbbell press might be something that now they can just see that. And I guess changing the rep range, like you said, like seeking the areas you, you do what you haven't been doing. Uh, I know that actually relates to an article Greg did ages ago in terms of like, he talked about like newbie gains and he basically said like, change your program. Like if you've been doing low volume, heavy, go to high volume, light, like just that that can be a way of periodizing so yeah definitely that variation seems to be important that makes sense and that balance i think there's the there's the balance between like changing things just to change them just to get that dopamine of that learning effect and really like changing things intentionally like i got yeah. the opportunity to go to the cadaver lab and i looked at the pack and it just like blew my mind i'm like oh wow this thing has muscle fibers going everywhere i probably want to like if i want to really train this thing I probably want to train in the majority of those ranges of motion. Um, and then if you take like, you're, you got a lot of different ranges of motion there for the pec and then you got lengthened and shortened. Um, so I think that as this doesn't matter for someone who's just walking in the weight room, like compounds are probably going to be your best bet. But I think once you've, you know, you've wore that out, you've, you've ran out of a significant amount of runway. And I think you have a decision there is like, I'm either going to bang my head harder against the wall 
And I, I got nothing against that decision. Like, sounds fun. Like, let's, let, I don't think there's, you can make an argument, like you get stronger in those compounds, it may benefit you. Um, but I think, I don't think you have, I don't necessarily think it has to be either or. Um, if you, if you, if you're willing to be open-minded, I think you can kind of, and, and the research is actually starting to kind of show that like, wow, if people who haven't trained at length and muscle lengths, maybe they get a little bump when they do train those um, because that maybe is from a regional hypertrophy situation, maybe it's, it is actually activating and giving, giving something that they didn't have before. Very interesting. And it makes me even more convinced I need to get to like a, a pure bodybuilding gym that has like all these different machines that I can start possibly just training the muscles slightly differently. Though you can, like you said, you can do a lot with cables, dumbbells, barbell, you, you're covering a heck of a lot just with those pieces of equipment. So yeah, and like you said, this is for very advanced people. I don't want people listening to this be like, oh, I need to go to like this mecha gym that's got every single thing there so I can train every single different muscle length and all of this. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely, you can definitely give yourself like, you go, I've, I've created spreadsheets where there's just way too many variables. I'm like, oh, this is, this is, I've probably taken this to a place where it's actually, it's too complex. Uh, so you, you kind of, I think you have, you are wearing like the choice, you're, you're in the range of like the choice paradox where you get too many choices and eventually you kind of get analysis by or paralysis by analysis. Um, and so I think there's a, everyone kind of has to figure out what might work for them. And I, I do think having sounding boards of, of coach and other people to like kind of, cause we can, we all have our biases, right. And we can talk ourselves into things and it's good to have other people uh, look at what we're doing and kind of give us their, their input. Um, and I, it's just, I see it as, I see it as part of the process of wanting to get better. If you're open, if you're really open to wanting to get better, you're probably open to that objective feedback, um, from, from other people. And then I will say that there may come a point in your life where you don't maybe the, the, the time and energy that it would take to get better is maybe not worth it. And, and that you, when we see this, it generally happens because of an injury or life. Um, and I know that, that I've had, like, I definitely asked those questions when we had a child, like, but then I realized like training is my anchoring habit. And that's what I love most about it. So I feel better every day that I can train is a really cool day. It's a fun day. So if I can have more training days, I'm going to be a better human for all of those involved. Right. So it's, it really does benefit. Um, and that's where I have to assess is like, am I a better human if I'm, you know, three to 4%, if I'm, if I'm peeled to the nines, like, I don't know if, I don't know if I would be as, as able to be patient and, and helpful um, with others in my life. My guess is I would not, I would be more reactive and I would have trouble, but that could be a fatalistic narrative. That's not necessarily helpful. Yeah. I think it's, um, yeah, you don't, like you said, you don't want to convince yourself you're going to be that way, but I'm normally quite an empathetic and patient person. And <laughs> there definitely have been times uh, that's completely gone. Um, it's actually a really weird feeling of like just apathy towards things. So uh, yeah, I can recommend definitely for a newborn child, like yeah, prep and going through that. Or if your kind of other half is pregnant, well, maybe if they're pregnant and they're not giving birth, it might be all right, but probably still if they're pregnant, not in an ideal time to start con test prepping I. <laughs> I i would i would tend to agree um but i i maybe there's always like you can all I, my buddy says like you can always like pure bodybuilding maybe you don't do that maybe you do the board shorts and i'm like and then i then right. i'm like oh, i don't think i want to do the board short one yeah that's not but nothing against that different structure different folks um but that's i think 
if you you're if in order to get your glutes shredded like where you're headed this coming weekend there's a cost to that um and i think the the psychological cost there's there's really no denying that from a from an acute perspective absolutely and actually i've only got one final question on this topic i think uh and that's relates to i i something you might have heard of is stimulus to fatigue ratio and it just got me thinking as you were talking about like training muscles in different ways essentially at different lengths and things and do you find that that kind of stimulus to fatigue ratio could be a good guiding principle to help you select like maybe you don't know all about different lengths and shortening and like long range uh sorry the like short length length and range that sort of thing but you know like oh this movement gives me like a gnarly pump i get really good like disruption within the muscle really like intense fatigue within this part of my chest like it feels great and i can progress with this and it's not beating me up centrally like i don't feel super fatigued and it feels really nice do you think that could kind of guide a lot of people well or do you think that's almost actually flawed and you could look at that and it could move you the wrong direction man i think of it like i'm gonna take this maybe not in the direct way that you wanted but i think of it in terms of time now so from because i'm time is my number one constraint and it's not even like it's it's my number one money like it's the number one thing that it's become everything for me uh and so i think about like like a squat, like a back squat. Like I have so much emotional like baggage when it comes to front squatting and back squatting. Like I can, like I've, I've front squatted 340, 340 pounds for two. I don't know what that is in kilos. It's probably like 150, right? It's, it's pretty good, pretty decent for a 180 pound dude. Um, like, so I get on a front squat bar and I think about that. Like there's no probably getting around that level. Same thing with the same thing with back squat, right? So there's like this emotional connection to it. Um, and it takes me a while to warm up and get to those working sets. Whereas if you do it leg extension, like how long does it really take you to warm up to do that? It's completely different. You do a pendulum squat. Like how long does it really take you to warm up to do a set of 15? So that's kind of the, the things that I've been thinking about a lot is like, and, and then you, so I think a good, like, let's compare a pendulum squat, which is arguably a very very lengthened quad exercise maybe the maybe like the most other than yeah i guess you could do a falling back split squat or something like that um but very lengthened quad focused exercise uh which i would argue once you get good at it has a really really high systemic fatigue like if you're taking that to sets of 15 like you're smoked like you're just on floor like smoke showed uh, i think probably maybe even more than a back squat because i think you can just go to another level with it um, because you are, you have more constraints and you're able to put forth maybe a little bit more effort. So I would say once you get good at it in the beginning, you won't have that high of systemic fatigue because you're not that good at it. But once you get good at it, you'll, you can blow yourself out. Um, whereas, but I will say that you can do that a lot faster um, because you necessarily have to warm up as much. Whereas a back squat, you have a lot of technique. You've got a lot of things that you're worried about. You have a lot of prior narratives in your head. Um, whereas for me, I can just get in there and I can blaze. And, and so from a time-based perspective, even though it's high systemic fatigue, I can get out of that a lot quicker than I would if you gave me five by five or something on a back squat. Um, that that could take a five by five on a back squat, if we're being real, like that could take a lot of us 30, 40 minutes to get out of. Like let's yeah. just let's just be real. Like with warm-ups and taking three to five minutes between sets, it could take a while. Landing extension, how fast could you get out of five sets of that, or could you superset it with something else? 
Absolutely. So I think that when you, when I started thinking of things in terms of time, like where, where can I put those high systemic fatigue that probably do have high payoff? Where can I put those? And where I put those is actually after a bunch, this is going to be completely wild to people, but where I put them is actually at the end of my workout. Because if I did that at the beginning, I'd be smoked. I'd be done. Right. Whereas I can probably get out of there in 10 to 15 minutes and it just becomes my finisher. Um, and that's worked really well for me is I, I accumulate a bunch of volume on things that aren't very systemically fatiguing, like even a dumbbell press, not very systemically fatiguing. Um, even, even like lap pull downs, things like that, probably not super systemically, most upper body stuff. And then some, maybe some lower body, not as systemically fatiguing stuff. And then boom, you hit that, maybe hit that at the end where you wouldn't, whereas if you hit that in the beginning, you probably have rep drop-offs on all that other stuff. Um, so time has actually been my biggest constraint at, at looking at how I can maximize my efficiency and the density of training um, and just the overall potential effectiveness of what I'm doing. And then also like not be completely crushed for the rest of the day. Yeah. Almost like a stimulus to time ratio <laughs> in some ways. And uh, I guess, is that alluding to the fact you do full body sessions then? Yeah, I, I'm not, it's, it's very like I, you would categorize them as kind of full body, but I probably pick three to four muscle groups per day. And then I hit four to eight sets on those. So invariably it's kind of full body. There's some overlap. I think if it just becomes most of these problems are logistical problems. And so if you, once you take your sets up to 20, like how are you going to break that up? Like, it just becomes like, it, you probably have to train three, four, five times a week for that muscle group. So it, you just kind of get to this point. I mean, Menno's, I think he's done a good job of showing like, okay, your max recover, like maxed adaptable volume inside of a session is maybe 10 ish, um, depending on the exercises you're picking. Right. Um, so I think like if you're, but that takes a lot of time. And so I, if you're, if you're trying to take your sets up, eventually you just get in frequency is, is your next variable that you're moving. Right. Um, so I, I just think eventually if you're advanced, you're going to get to higher frequency training, because if you have those very, if 10 is your, is our potential max adaptable volume for, for a session, it's probably with give or take, um, based on the individual, right. Um, then I think invariably you're, if you want to get up in sets, even if you'd have to have, maybe you could do two set, two days of 10, but then how many sets are you going to be able to get in the session? Um, and it just becomes a time thing. No, absolutely. That was a question I was going to ask actually earlier, but you answered it here in terms of the muscle groups you're prioritizing, you're pushing sets up higher, you're doing at higher frequencies, which makes a, a ton of sense. Um, I, I'll, I'll leave it happens. In. <laughs> it happens. So like, yeah, if I'm hold, I'll just say if I'm holding a muscle group, it's generally two sessions a week. Whereas if, if I'm taking it, if I'm taking a muscle group up, it's probably four. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and so the programming of it just gets weird based on that because you have to fit four days of that one muscle group that you're taking up and then you're holding all those other, you're holding, maybe, maybe you're taking two muscle groups up and then you're holding the other ones in that baseline or whatever. And then, so you have multi, you have a couple of muscle groups that you're training, you know, four, maybe even five times a week. And then you got other muscle groups where you're only training them twice a week. Yeah. 
Fantastic. No, that was It was really interesting to just hear about your training setup. Actually, I didn't intend that to be a chunk of the podcast, but it's become that way. And I think people will get some interesting insights from that. I definitely did. So uh, I actually brought Ben on to talk about processed foods. Uh, so it was essentially um, <laughs> a completely different topic, in fact. Um, how bad are processed foods? Because I think this is something that's never been really covered on the podcast. And I think because maybe... People just have an understanding of, oh, it's the 80-20% rule. 80% of our food comes from wholesome, minimally processed food. 20% can come from what have you. Flexible dieting, great setup. Don't need to think more about it. But I think you can think a little bit more about it. <laughs> and uh, I think you did in this article and did a good job of that. So I'd like to first of all kind of start with maybe kind of what are processed foods. And you also talked about kind of highly processed foods and what kind of thresholds there are for this sort of thing and the pros and cons and uh, just a, a good overall discussion. But I'll let you kind of start with that first question. Yeah, I think all the nuances and the details of everything we just talked about, I think you can kind of bring that same nuance and, and deep thinking to this topic of, of food processing. Um, and I think we have an overall narrative right now that food processing is bad. But Food processing is likely one of the biggest things that allowed human beings to take over the world, uh, like fire, being able to extract more energy from food. Um, if you've read a lot of like just anthropology research, like every culture, every human society cooks or processes food in some way. Um, so we, we likely need it um, to be able to extract the energy that we need from food. So like, the one diet that I really can't get behind for long periods of time, and I'm sure I'll get a lot of get a lot of heat for this, it would be like a raw vegan approach. Like I don't know that someone can. I, I think they can with supplements and and different things in our new age environment. But if you just did a really really raw vegan with very limited processing, I would be hesitant to say that you can that that the vast majority of people can extract enough. Um, nutrients or even eat enough food, especially you and I on this call to get enough. Now, vegan diets where you're adding cooking, you're, and you're, you're able to get more nutrients out of that. I think you're going to be, you're going to be fine. Um, but it gets into like, you take that dietary extremism, maybe a little bit too far and it can potentially get people in trouble. But I think the, the narrative that people are really talking about in, in what, what I've even struggled with as a human is this, dichotomous relationship with ultra processed food and that's like thinking of ultra processed food is bad um because i think that that thought process inevitably gets us in trouble because i think anytime we go myopic and we think about things in in good and bad we there's a there's a negative there um but if we're looking for you could argue on the flip side of that if we're looking for a smoking gun if we're looking, looking for a simple kind of narrative around obesity, this one holds a lot of weight. Um, it, not ultra processed foods directly, but ultra processed foods ability to potentially increase the amount of calories that we consume and therefore increase our adiposity over time. And so what I, the, the big thing that, that I've kind of, and that's intertwined with Kevin Hall's, not necessarily Kevin Hall's, but the protein leverage hypothesis. And as you increase food processing, you probably also decrease protein intake. And that may, if you look at some of the studies that may account for potentially 50% of the rise in obesity, that's a big chunk. Um, 
then you combine that like okay now we look at sedentary behavior how does that play into appetite and also our you know our potential want of these ultra processed food items and our dysregulation of appetite and you're talking about a potential big hunk of arguably one of the biggest problems that human beings have ever faced um so this is a monumentally huge issue and the thing about it is like we've taken ultra processed food we've we've opened pandora's box if you will and we can't shove them back in so we have to on the individual level on the macro level we we have to figure out what to do with potato chips what to do with ice cream we have to figure out and then not to be judgy on other people on what they're doing um and i think that's where that perspective taking is 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 really really important because this stuff if you take it out far enough it gets it does go into every level of our society hey pascal here i just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site inside you'll find a thriving forum an extensive exercise library courses presentations and research reviews all i need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up yeah i think it's you know, I, I, I like the, the the background there in terms of like, ultimately, we wouldn't be where we are without processing. And even I, th- I think you said in the article, like some foods, I, I well, you're referencing it there with the raw vegan diet, like you have to process some foods to be able to even get the nutrition that we need from them. Uh, and but processed foods can be a problem. And especially in a non and actually, you said it in the article where we're just not good at controlling our appetite surrounding these foods and that might be related to the the protein the low protein within them and i guess for a lot of the people listening they can be kind of if they are tracking their nutrition and things like this they're probably thinking well food composition is lower importance to me than like macros macro totals and things like this um but when we're talking kind of for those kind of ultra processed foods how how what how, how can we distinguish kind of how processes like processed and what's good what's bad i guess even something i'd been thinking about was like with all the growth of um, vegan products and the meat substitutes it's like is having like this soy chicken bite better or worse than having a steak <laughs> or is it just different is it processed and so it's worse or is it just different? I, don't, I actually don't know the answer. So I don't know if you have any thoughts. I th- so I think we can look to the literature on this and we can kind of look to the literature in that it's, it's, it's very hard to categorize foods. Um, and I think SEGA out of France has done potentially the best job so far. And I would say best with a, with a large, like my agreement with it is, I like what they've tried to do. Um, and so I, I think if you think about the majority of the of the folks listening or watching to this call, they're probably taking whole foods and they're processing them to some degree and then eating them as meals. Like that's generally what the most of us are doing. Even if you have like a, what a quote unquote squeaky clean diet, like you're probably shopping on the outside aisles and then you're cooking those, you're processing those products in some degree. Uh, maybe you eat a salad and that's relatively, but still you're cutting it, you're chopping it. Um, and, and, and then you're eating it. So we're all processing food to some degree. And, and I think the lines in the sand of where that gets quote unquote bad or detrimental and how detrimental is, is what's most interesting to me. And I, it's also what's kind of most interesting from a public policy standpoint, because things get very, very like, as soon as you put a line in the sand, then you're, 
because of our food environment and, and food sourcing. Like, so this gets to like taxation of sugar sweetened beverages and stuff like that. Like you put a line, it's like 10 grams per 100 milliliters. Then everybody's going to go to 9.9. Like, so they're, you're going to you're going to always create these ripples. Um, and so what Siga did is they put, they had um, different distinctions based on sodium content, based on total fat content and based on added sugar content. And so that's how they progressed um, all per, all by weight, which I think is important. And then it was different for liquids and solids, which I will also agree with um, because liquid food tends to be not as satiating. Um, and, and so I would disagree. Their added sugar for meals was 12.5 grams per 100 grams. I think you'd probably want to keep that consistent with like the 10%. So you'd probably want to keep that under 10 grams per 100 grams. Um, but the sodium gets gets problematic. I think in the general population, we do probably want to lower your, lower our sodium intake, right? Um, there there seems to be a U shaped curve there, and and lots of people argue this. I don't want to go down a sodium rabbit hole. Um, in general, you probably want to lower your sodium intake, but no one can keep their sodium intake as low as everybody wants it. So that seems to be you know a pipe dream. Um, and, and so they had a sodium recommendation. And then also for the people listening to this call, if you're sweating and you're an athlete, I mean, you can lose grams of sodium per hour training. Um, so remember, these are recommendations for general population. Um, so there's a lot of nuance even inside that. But I think they're added sugar recommendations. And then the fat one, a lot of people, so this is, I think, is the most surprising. And I cover this in the article. A lot of people, if you ask them, like, what are potato chips going to pop for? Most everybody would say, oh, they're going to pop for carbohydrates. That's what's going to turn them into an ultra-processed food. It's not what turns them into ultra-processed food if you look at these, a lot of these categorizations. What turns them into ultra-processed food is their fat content. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's very surprising to a lot of people is that potato chips and ice cream, they're combinations of fat and carbohydrates. And that's what's most troublesome about them is, yes, they're hyperpalatable, but they, they're not just carbohydrates. Now, could someone, if we think about like pretzels compared to potato chips, like pretzels are generally fairly low in fat. And that's my ultimate beef with, with Sega probably is the ability for some like Gatorade can kind of sneak in there. And then also you, you could sneak pretzels in there um, because they don't have a lot of added fat and this thing isn't really tracking. They don't have a lot of added sugar and they, they, so they just have a, they're crunchy and they have a ton of carbohydrates. Um, so they might not make it into an ultra a UPF or an ultra processed food. Um, and so that's where I think looking at these and adding energy density in can be, can be pretty helpful. Cause I think energy density is, is, um, it automatically kind of gets into nutrient density in a way. Um, but I think it's a good filter in which we can look at our food environment. No, that makes makes a lot of sense, and it makes sense that there's going to be some sneaky foods that can make their way through there. I can, I'm thinking of um, as a bodybuilder following quite a high carb, lower fat approach in like an off season. There's tons of these like essentially gummy bears. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you you throw enough like fake fiber in a gummy bear, you might be able to. You might you, allulose or whatever. Like you can you can engineer. Like that's the thing. Like. People are going to be able to engineer things that get around. Like, so as soon as we create lines of the sand, it's not bad. There's just going to be boom, food engineering is going to pop it somewhere. They're going to figure out a way to get it under that marker. And that may not be bad. Um, but I think it is something that we have to think about it, it, with the multifactorial nature of this, of all of this topic. And something I'm interested in is 
obviously you said a lot of the time we're processing food at home anyway. So you're building a meal, you're cooking it, and then you're consuming it, which is great. Like it's all from like wholesome ingredients. Then you you kind of do that. Do you have any thoughts on kind of ready meals, prepackaged meats, kind of takeaways now? There's even like, I don't know, healthier options of takeaways or even just your bog standard, like a, a, a pizza or something. It's like, well, that you break it down. It's bread, it's tomato, it's cheese. Like when people think like they just think, oh, pizza is awful, but is it as bad or are there certain worse like takeaways? Because again, it gets all a bit nuanced and it isn't as clear cut as just black and white, I don't think. Yeah, so I, I, I think the best way to look at this is to flip the question. So a lot of people are asking like how I, we need to eat less ultra processed food. And I would absolutely agree with that on the population level. Like you look at Western society, 61 to 84% of our daily calories are coming from ultra processed food. It's a lot. It's a yeah. huge, it's a significant portion of calories. Very, 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 very disconcerting, especially when you look at children upwards in the 60%, like where are they getting their calories from? Um, and so I, I always flip it as like, how could we potentially get understanding that 60 to 80% is, is very, very likely too much. Um, I think that the threshold is probably going to be a lot like added sugar. Like this can, you talked about 80, 20, I would probably go somewhere around there. Um, and so how I like, we can, I think as a researcher, I can get lost in the complexity of it. I, I think if we get pragmatic about it, it actually becomes something that we can, if we don't think of them as good or bad, we think of them as almost like a spice. Like we don't think of pizza as, as bad. We just think of it as like, can I fit it in? Like from a logistical standpoint. Um, and if you, so if we look at WHO, they, and, and let's not everyone lose their mind over WHO right now. Let's just like, look at it. Like 400 grams is their general recommendation for fruits and vegetables for, if you're in the U S that's about 0.8 to 0.9 pounds. So about a pound of fruits and vegetables, not a lot. It's about five servings. Um, so if you plug that in and every, I think it's a good idea for people to actually do this, plug that into chronometer, plug that into one of the app that you're using. It's generally only about 250 calories, depending on what you're picking. So, you know, best case, like even following the recommendation, fruits and vegetables are probably only going to make up 10% of an average, like if you look at Ponser's data, average females probably eating around 2,400 calories. Average male in our society is probably eating low 3,000s. Um, it's a lot more than the, the average 2,000 calorie diet, which which we think, which no one's eating. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, even following the recommendation, fruits and vegetables are, are only going to make up 10% of our dietary intake. Now, I would arguably take that up. I would take that up to, you know, five to six servings of vegetables, two to three at every meal, um, and then probably two to three servings of fruit. And if you do that, you get somewhere in the range of 400 to 500 calories. And then you probably have some, if you're an omnivore, you probably have some meat-based protein, boom, boom, boom. That's going to, that's going to take you up to like, you know, a thousand, maybe 1200 calories. Right. And then now, now you're, now we're there. Now we're there. Cause if you're, if you're you and I, if we're a maintenance, I got a, I got three, I got mid three thousands to eat, you know? Um, and so I can't do that with vegetables. Believe me, I've tried, like you get 90 to hundred grams of fiber. It's not a good time. Um, so you got to fill those calories with something. 
And so the problem really becomes where are ultra processed foods going to be most problematic? People who can't eat a lot of calories because you can like that pizza is 1250 calories. You and I on a maintenance or refeeding day, that, like that's not going to make or break me. Yeah. But we, if you look at the double labeled water literature, it's wild. People like they have, they have some of these smaller people populations. If you look at the data and like that aren't moving very well. And there are legitimately females in those data sets who burn under a thousand calories. That's not RMR. That's TDE. That's, that's total daily energy expenditure. So there are, if you're not moving and you are a small human, there's a chance that one pizza puts you in an excess of calories. Like there's a legitimate chance. Um, so for, for the average human that doesn't have a lot of muscle mass and is very sedentary, these hyperpalatable foods are dangerous for lack of a better word in, in progressively weight gain because they have a high propensity to get people in an excess of calories fairly easily. Um, and I do think there is an asterisk here that is worth noting. And that is that the average human, even in our Western society, is probably overeating by an average of eight calorie, eight to 10 calories per day. So if you think about it, 61 to 84% of our current intake is ultra-processed foods. And the average, I'll, I'll just take it to the US, and the average American gets 5,167 steps. So we got to pick up eight calories a day. So I, in, my, in the back of my mind, to stop waking, I think trying to get weight loss on the macro level is, is I don't think it's, I'm not a very pessimistic person, but I think that it's probably not going to happen. But that's where I think like reframing the messaging in a lot of these studies is really what's necessary. Like you look at the the meta-analysis that everyone likes to cite that fruits and vegetables didn't cause weight loss. Yeah, they didn't cause weight loss, but people also didn't gain weight at the normal clip that they normally gain. Same thing with exercise. Like you look at, you look at, you know, Martin's paper, you look at all of these exercise papers. Yeah. They didn't lose a ton of weight, but in general, they put on some muscle mass and they didn't gain weight. So it was able. And I, I think if you combine these, if you combine uh, more whole foods with an increase in, in physical activity, I think it does on, on the macro level. I think it does have the potential ability to, dare I say, halt the obesity epidemic. I don't, turning it around is a different story, but I do think it has the potential to halt it. And we know that these, both of these things will probably make most humans objectively healthier. I think that's incredibly well said. Uh, I think that covers off the question really nicely in that at least for the population listening, which are probably not the ones that you're kind of targeting a lot of that messaging to, unfortunately, but for the population listening, if they cover their bases, almost it made me, it made it sound like a paleo diet in some ways, like, uh, and that's a healthy baseline diet is like plenty of fruit and veg. You're getting your protein from like lean protein sources for the most part, maybe, or kind of animal proteins or some plant-based proteins chucked in there as well. And then, you've hit your fiber you've hit your micronutrients like the rest it's almost a little bit of a much of a muchness because you're getting all the you don't get a golden staff having like a fully clean diet or what have you uh but the problem is the general population are not 
doing that like you almost want it to be like brushing your teeth you have to have hit these quotas in the day to have hit because once you've hit those then you've got that much fiber coming in and that much protein i don't expect people will want to eat as much as what they they do when they just have the hyperpalatable foods which you already said like they're incredibly easy to eat excess amounts of so even i guess actually for something like these uh, ready meals that are coming out that you can get in like a supermarket if they are full of and you can get ones at least here in the uk full of protein full of veggies like they're making the healthier options they're actually a, although processed a great option for someone who's like they can't be asked to cook otherwise they're just ordering a, i don't know a pizza but for that like like you said the smaller female who hasn't got a lot of calories this is like a I don't know 400 calorie ready meal with loads of their veggies and kind of meats in Rather than framing that as, oh, it's processed, it's bad, that could almost be looked at as like, that's processed and it's helping me because it's got, it's pro, it's kind of taken that step out that I'd have to do. It, would that be fair? Yeah. So I always, I always take this to the, maybe not always, but I, I will generally take, I, I think that these types of new age prepared meals are, I think that they're inevitable. And I think that they are, they can be extremely helpful. I, like from a, from a weight loss, from a weight loss maintenance standpoint, from just a general health standpoint, I think that we are our default systems. And so when you're out of time, when you're like just very pragmatically, what are your worst choices? If your worst choices are like Uber Eats, donuts, and everything in sight, that's, that's your like, but if, you're, if your worst choice is, you know, getting a salad with maybe a dressing that you put half on it, which might be a little bit heavy, right. Or eating one of these, eating a prepackaged proportion health meal. I, I think those are, I think those are, can be really, really helpful decisions in our, in our current world. And I, I take this to a, a place where a lot of people in, ironically in the evidence-based fitness uh, and nutrition place are kind of scared to go. And that's uh, low energy diets. So if you look at low energy diets, which is essentially as processed as it gets, um, we're going to, sometimes they include as all you can eat vegetables on the side, but most you're going to eat, you think about Briner at all, which is 1999, um, looked at a 800 calorie diet, about 44 grams of protein, I believe. Um, and those individuals with resistance training, they lost over 30 pounds of body fat, I think in 12 weeks. And there are, because they were resistance training three times per week, their RMR actually went up by 63 calories. Um, and so like you, a lot of people would argue like, that's terrible. Like, those, but if you look at results from like a metabolic health standpoint, type two diabetics, Adrian Brown was on Sigma. Uh, we have the direct study out of Roy Taylor's lab um, looking at the remission of type two diabetes. You could argue that that's about as ultra processed as it gets. Um, and it's maybe one of the strongest tools that we have for acute weight loss. Um, and if you have resistance training on board, I would argue that you can probably perhaps maintain muscle. No one, if you're advanced, don't do that. Very, you're probably gonna lose a lot of muscle mass. Like the degree of the degree of the deficit um matters on on your starting point. Um, but for people who are objectively carrying a lot more body fat than they need, those strategies can be very, very helpful. Um, the problem is they only have one skill. So those people only have one tool. They only have one hammer. And so now we're starting to see, all right, can we use that in an active weight loss phase? And then what are the behaviors? How can we, how can we potentially hold that um, in our current environment? And that like active weight loss has never been the hard thing. Um, it's, it's yeah. always been, what are we, what are we going to do after that? 
Um, and I think if we look at, this is why I think myself and like, cause I have a PhD in the external numbers of food. Like most people don't think about food in numbers. They think about, and that's a great thing. They think about food, but they think about blueberries as blueberries. Um, and so how can, that's where I think looking at this energy density, looking at these lines in the sand can be potentially helpful because where is the line in the sand where people can potentially subconsciously rep, rec, regulate their appetite? Because on the, on the meta level, on the, the macro level, we are not going to be able to cognitively regulate this stuff. Like that's, I'm just going to be straight up with everybody listening. Like that's a pipe dream. You're, we're not going to be accurate. Like no one on my fitness pal is, is that accurate. Like it takes a lot of time to get very accurate. Um, and I don't know that even getting that accurate is a skill that will be related to long-term success. Um, and that kind of boggles people's minds. Um, because weight loss maintainers are no more, are generally not that much more accurate than normal people. Um, and so how can we subconsciously create an environment that allows someone to be healthier and maybe that healthier is, I'll pick my words very carefully here. Maybe that healthier is maintaining long-term weight loss. Um, and I think that's where you get into what is the break point with ultra processed foods? What is the break point with energy density? And so I like outside of, of this little world and little niche that we live in, this is, extremely extremely important if not if not the most important topic in nutrition yeah it's it is very fascinating and i think it's scary because like you said it's so hard to regulate these foods and then each and every day we're kind of making life in many ways more sedentary like there's things coming out to try and make us less and like the fitbits and these sort of things which i think probably on a population level uh incredibly helpful for a lot of people but then you've got like the scooters coming out like there's so many of these scooters coming around london where people are just like commuting between like i don't know they leave the office and they go on their scooter and they go to like a prep or like a, a cafe and they pick up their lunch and they scoot back it's like they're not even getting any any steps they're just kind of so like it, it's just a, i guess burning the candle at both ends in that sense and that's that's really scary and i think it's so hard because even education and awareness that's what as in my heart that's what needs to happen but i just like you i, I don't think that's gonna happen it's kind of a pipe dream as well yeah i i think that education awareness and self-efficacy and autonomy i think those are all important i think those are part of part of the solution but i don't think that the skill of weighing and measuring your food and being extremely accurate with calories I don't think that is a skill that the majority of people need to build. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't think there's, I think there's the downsides overweigh the upsides because the average person actually being, they, they may, they may learn some things in that they might, they might learn like, okay, they trip on the truth of, wow, I have a lot of added fat in my diet. Like that's the most, like people don't think they eat a lot of fat and then they start tracking like, whoa, I had, there's a lot more fat in my diet than I really thought there was. Um, that's that's so there's a lot of things that people trip on uh, when they start doing this. And I don't think that, that it's bad. I don't think that tracking is inherently bad. I think um, Drexler had a great article about like disordered eating and tracking and which comes first. Um, and it's generally people with disordered eating who start tracking that get into more trouble. Um, but the really interesting thing is like just tracking food probably doesn't do much for the, for the average person. Like it, it, cause they're not, they're just, they don't have the, the ability to do it very well. Um, 
and so I th- it's a it's a very interesting question to pose of if you didn't have that tool, what other tools would you potentially use? Um, and that's why I talked about low calorie diets, like just giving people takeaway meals, right? Which I think is becoming more and more popular. Um, and and then maybe people don't have to major in that, but they can work on the skills that are related to long-term weight loss success. Um, and those are eating a more nutrient dense diet. Like how can we add more vegetables at your meals? How can, how can we increase your level of physical activity? How can we increase your self-efficacy for physical activity? So you feel like you're, you're really, you fall, you fell in love with the movement practice that, that you really do love and you're focused on getting better at that. Um, and so that's, that's kind of, I lean much more. If like I had one ring to rule them all, I would pick physical activity over food-based stuff. Yeah. Um, because I think physical activity, higher levels of physical activity is the number one strategy, non-food-based related to long-term weight loss success. Um, and weight loss maintainers look to get 11,000 plus steps a day. If you look observationally. And I, I think that it's really, really important for a number of reasons probably getting to that higher level constraint of energy expenditure. And then I also do think that it has the potential to regulate our appetite. And then I would buffer myself with, if you look at the meta-analysis and systematic reviews of getting 10,000 steps as an independent weight loss, doesn't work. People lose on average 0.3 kilos over 28 weeks. If you look at the meta analysis, like so, as an independent strategy, I wouldn't expect walking more to get you a lot of weight loss. But reframe, they didn't gain weight in that half a year. They still lost maybe half a kilo. So that's still a big, big deal. So I think we really need to look at like what we take as an L, and what could really be a victory. Yeah. Um, because I see that as potentially the biggest victory, whereas a lot of people who are seeking, seeking acute weight loss, they see that as a loss. Um, and I think we do need to kind of reframe that. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Yeah, I think that's... That's very well said. And I wonder if it will come into like, um, I guess the our government have like recommendations. I think it's of like, I don't know, two times 30 minutes of activity a week or something. I might be saying that wrong, but I wonder if it will come in like people will get <laughs> given their, their Fitbit and you have to hit like, I don't know, on average this many steps per week as a government recommendation to try and get you in line. And even down to, uh, I've seen it, I wonder if it, it's probably available in the US as well. Oh, like Trifecta, for example, like these meal prep companies that they just give you all of your meals, for example. Um, I think that's really cool. And then things like Pokemon Go is something I was thinking of. Like it's, you have to get outside, you have to walk, like gamifying these sort of activities. Um, I guess that's the route we're going to have to go down versus like it's almost, (laughs) I don't want to say tricking you into making the right decisions, but in a sense, it's almost doing that. I said we were going to get into weird if, if, because if, whenever you get in this conversation, you really do kind of get into public policy because uh, um, it, it's, it, it gets weird. Like, cause we've hit the evolutionary lottery and that we can get massive amounts of calories that are delicious 
for very little monetary cost, and we don't actually have to work for them. Uh, and so that's beautiful in the fact that this is the ultimate problem of progress. We've we've hit like human beings have been struggling to get enough energy since the dawn of time, but now we have way too much energy around us and we don't have to expend any energy to get that way too much energy. Um, and so trying to, we used to have all of our norms used to be very dedicated to very different. Right. Um, so I, I do think that we have to change the environment in which we live and then I also do think that we have to have education, self-efficacy, these because you can't just lower the bar of adversity. You have to, you do have to show people how to jump over it. Um, and I think both of those are very, very important. But if you look at the US, around 22% of our current population meets the fiscal activity. That's, that's terrible. And so the US is going, I think it's it's a good um Tight and loose cultures, I think, is a good way. If, if people have, uh, I'm going to put Gelfont's her last name. She's done. A, you can just Google her in the last name PubMed ID. So, tight cultures are th- like what you exactly said right there. Like, we're going to embed a Fitbit into your ankle, and then everyone, if like, so there's like there's weird, like it gets weird, right? Um, and then everyone has to get whatever ten thousand steps, and uh, you can right there, like that would change the entire society. Like it would not on so many levels, like cities would be more walkable. Every, it would change everything. Um, and so I would actually be fine with that. If you gave people the competencies and the resources to get that done, like, Oh, you have a desk job. Here's a walking treadmill. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you can just do that and then not help people. That's, that's really messed up. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if that bugger like has negative side, like shocks you. or something. Yeah. So it, but it, I think it is, it's good to think about these things. Um, and, and cause I, I did, a, I did a study when my, it was a very loose study. It was like, um, and I put pedometers, like I had all, I was, it was a, we were, tra- it was a training study. And so we were, we were, I was measuring glycogen via ultrasound and we were training every other day with circuit training. And I was trying to figure out, um, like we were on a relatively lower carb approach, like three grams per kilogram on training days and one gram per kilogram on non-training days. And I wanted to see if our glycogen went down. Couldn't tell you that because the noise in the, in the ultrasound data was too much. To, it overwhelmed it. But I was trying to control for daily activity in, in these individuals that were there. And one of the individuals who uh, applied for the study is one of my one of my friends, and he's, he's he calls himself a handstand comedian. His name's Carson Cal- Calhoun, and so his bright idea is he put the he put the pedometer on the dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so the but but then it was great. At the end of the day, I was like, "Yo, where's your pedometer?" At? I got to check the numbers, and he's like, "Oh, it's on the dog." And we all had a good laugh. We all had a good we all had a good laugh, right? Whatever. Like the and I was mad at him in my inside. I'm not gonna lie, uh, but I pulled the pedometer off the dog. And it was 500 steps, like because the dog was lazy that day, uh, and it didn't leave the house. Um, and so I, I do think that when we have to, we have to really think multifactorially about these things whenever we're thinking about them, um, because there's going to be a lot of ripples. Like if we, everyone needs to do this. Okay, what's the cost of that? How yeah. are we support? How are we supporting that? Because I'm this gets to bring it back to kind of ultra processed foods, like. Think about sugar sweet beverage consumption taxation, which is which is hot right now. Um, and it looks like if you if you pull the recent studies, it looks like it can change purchasing. Uh, it looks like it can even potentially lower BMI. 
um, on the population level, anything lowering, potentially even lowering BMI is a, is a big deal. Cause we're talking about like BMI progressively increases generally. Um, and so in the UK, I think the study was like 0.07 on a BMI. So not like, we're not talking like no one's going to notice this amount of weight loss. Um, and it, the, the amount that it goes down is probably going to depend on baseline sugar sweetened beverage consumption and, and a lot of other things. So it's going to be different country to country. Um, but I think that this, all of these types of questions are going to gain steam. And I, what I, what I would caution people against is thinking of food like cigarettes. We can't think of food like cigarettes because it's not like, if there's anything you can think of like cigarettes, it is sugar sweetened beverages, but it's like, and I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine with that. But it, then it becomes like, where's that? It gets really weird in the United States. Cause it's like, where's that taxation going? And then we're yeah. also, and then it gets really weird. Cause then you're also subsidizing corn on the front end. It's like, what? Like we're paying for this on the front and the back. So it gets, it gets very interesting. And I, I think that on the individual level, the most pragmatic we can be is create a foundation of real food. And then we can start to assess how these other things kind of fit in. Um, knowing that we're not going to be able to regulate them super well, if we encounter a variety of them, we're probably going to get in trouble, especially in the social connotations where everyone's eating a lot of them. Um, but I think the best thing to do is flip the question. Who doesn't have a problem in a current food environment? Giant individuals. They don't have a problem. And if you look at like, what is obesity trying to do? What are the objective benefits of living with obesity? You get more calories because you put on more muscle because you're carrying around that weight and you can move 60% less and burn the same amount of calories as someone who is lean. So you, even obesity has objective benefits. And I think it, it, and obesity is the normalization to our current capitalistic, whatever we want to call it, food environment, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Um, so it, it, it really is people normalizing to that environment. And I, I think if we don't change the environment and we just yell at people, we're, we're not going to, we're, we're, we're going to be dinosaurs to be realistic. Like we're 91% of America has is it probably has too much adipose tension centrally 91%. So if you're looking in the mirror and you're yelling at people all the time, no, like over a long time, 30 to 40 years, like you could be, it's going to be scary, but you could be the, like, you could be the only one left. <laughs> oh man. That's just, uh, I had a side note of thinking about something else weird and the, the thought of obesity and them being heavier and kind of carrying that weight and therefore, can maintain on higher calories made me think of weighted apparel <laughs> yeah and i know yeah. you've actually been trying that but you're not going to get people to, to put weighted vests on as well <laughs> they actually have done that they've done okay. studies and it does have a small it tends to have a small weight reducing effect um even in people who are living with obesity how much uh, do they give uh, I think they're generally around 20 pounds ish. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And they, people lose, I, I'd have to pull the literature. There's been three studies now. Anytime I'm scratching my head, I don't know. That's my tell. <laughs> uh, and, and so I'd have to pull them. I do have them in my end note. Um, but I know that they, they're, the weight loss is not like mind blowing, but again, yeah. it's like, these are, they are not gaining weight. So like anytime you see an intervention 
that a lot, anytime you see an intervention that does not show, like it shows weight loss, but a little bit, and you think that it's clinically meaningless, it's not because the average weight gain in the average person in a Western environment is around two pounds per year. So anytime you halt that, you're halting that slow progression towards prediabetes, towards diabetes. Um, and so anytime you slow that progression, it's arguably good for health. Um, and I, this gets into weight loss for health. And that is, you cannot judge someone's health based on their weight. Um, this is very, very important. It is correlated, mm. but you, but that is not a metric. Weight is not a metric of health. It is not a metric of metabolic health. And I think that's one of the things that we have to understand in our current environment. Um, and, and so that gets into weight stigma and everything like that, but the ultra, how ultra processed food potentially fits into this. And I think it's really, really cool. Again, look at prospective research on fruits and vegetable consumption and increasing it. You don't see weight loss, but you don't see weight gain. And I think if you combine in this, so I'll take this to a place where I, I, I think that you'll like because it gets to coaching. So we've talked about avoidance, like avoidance versus approach goals. If you look at the literature that we have, and it's not a ton, uh, Rainer's really good. She's from the University of Tennessee, Holly Rainer. Uh, she's done a lot of this work. I think that approach is a better way to look at this versus avoidance. Um, because don't think about a pink elephant. What just happened? Thought about a pink elephant and that pink elephant, for some reason now you some, you're a grown adult and you probably want a pink elephant. Like, like, so like the value of it went up and you, and it brought it to your mind. So I think that's where, okay, what are the tech, what are the strategies that potentially allow us to lower our consumption of ultra processed food, not stockpiling them. So not buying a ton of them when they're on sale, um, keeping them hidden keeping them behind covered so they're not easily available. Don't have the candy jar on, on right on the surface. Like, uh, like look at most offices. It's a, just a telltale, like don't do any of these things. Um, and so how can you, how can you design your architect or like design your environment to, to kind of lower your consumption subconsciously, um, do all of those things. And then how can you approach, how can you fill your diet with more wholesome and more high volume foods that potentially leave you more satiated. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I've gotten. And then how can you be more active so that you can potentially have a better shot at regulating all of this? Because I think if you're not active, I don't think you have a shot because you have so you have such a small sink that you're, you're going to, you're going to get in trouble in our current environment. Yeah. That reminds me of, I think it's Brian Winsink. Uh, mind mindless eating maybe some of his work or his book uh, where he talked about that sort of thing as well and it, the office yeah 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 yeah, yeah. the office environment when i not that i've worked in an office environment for absolutely ages but uh, yeah there was always treats and snacks everywhere and obviously everyone's sitting all the time and yeah i guess offices need to get kind of up with the times and have fruit bowls out and have kind of the standing desks, even some treadmills, walking uh, meetings would be fantastic, stuff like that. So I think that's where we're kind of going. But I think that was a really interesting chat. Um, I've taken an hour of your time. I don't know if you have any closing thoughts. Uh, or we can, I, like, kind I of will say, I will say like, before we get eaten up, Wancy, uh, 
I knew this was a thing. Uh, Brian Wensick has had 15 papers retracted. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it has it like, so I, there is something um, towards eating rate, which I think you were getting like, that's another thing that has to do with these hyper palatable ultra processed foods. You can eat so many more calories in such a small amount of time. Um, so how I always, how I always talk about this is if you think about the most energy dense things we would have found pre-industrial food, it's honey, like honey is 3.4 K cows per gram. Yeah. Like the Hadza will do anything for honey. Like they will run through anything to get honey. They'll get stung through to the nines for honey. Um, so people have been doing things for energy dense foods for a long time. They've been high in value for a while. Um, also like anything that's really, really high in fat, but ha- fat by itself isn't super hyper palatable. Um, it's, it's only when you combine it with salt and sugar and crunchy. Um, so I, I, I do think like if we, if we look at Kevin Hall's, the best study that we have on this is Kevin Hall's where he tried to match. It was an ad libitum diet where he tried to match ultra processed versus unprocessed food. And he tried to match calorie density. And so even with fiber and, and lemonades and, and doing weird, doing weird stuff. Um, and even in that scenario, they, the people on, this is a, most of those studies that he've done are within subject design. So there's the same subjects doing both things. They ate on average 506, I believe more calories in that circumstance on the ultra processed food diet. That's controlling for energy density. So imagine that's, that's in an ablodome setting by yourself. Now take that out into a pizza party with, without fiber lemonade. And I think you easily, I think you easily get up into the thousands of calories. Um, and, and so it's, I don't want to say we avoid pizza parties because that's, and that's probably also not psychologically healthy. It's how do we have the tools how can we maybe do a water preload? Maybe we, you know, maybe you use some cognitive oversight or maybe you're just have so much muscle and you get 12 to 15,000 steps a day that you're able in a maintenance program, you're kind of able to laugh at pizza. Um, and that's, that's kind of the point where I want to get most of my clients to yeah. is, is this place of abundance inside. So I don't want like, I'm I'm not down with the if it fits your macros, but you're have a completely nutrientless diet. Like that's I'm not down. But the skeleton and the foundation that people need to have an adequate diet, fill that. And then let's have a nuance-based conversation about the rest of it. Yeah. And for a lot of people, filling that could be their entire cup. So they just don't have a lot of flexibility. So they're pushed to the middle. Um, and I think those are the those are the folks who are really, really struggling in our current environment. Yeah. Um, and weight, well loss, weight loss isn't, they're not going to do well at weight loss either. Um, so we got to give them a new tool because that's the tool we've been using. It hasn't been working. And I think that tool is, is more muscle. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We want a more muscular society. I, I'm all game for that. That sounds great. Uh, I'm sure the listeners are as well. Ben, I want to say a massive thank you. This has been a really fun chat, a bit of a different one as well uh, to some of the chats I've had on here. So I think that the listeners will really enjoy it. And I want to make sure if they want to learn more from you, uh, get more of your writing potentially, uh, where should they head? Uh, Yeah, so we have a subscription-based writing platform, which is deconstructnutrition.com. And then the best place to follow along with me is is Instagram uh, at drbenhouse. Um, And that's where you can see a lot of those conversations. 
Fantastic. I'll make sure that's all linked below so people can access it. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Guys, talk to you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Your Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.